So tonight, here we are, November 10th, 2020. A week ago, November 3rd, the election, and aren't you glad that election is behind us? What a relief. After all those months and months and months of uncertainty and debate and accusations and fake news and what a relief to finally get that thing done. And uh, you know it's not done. There is as much turmoil a week after the election as there was the week before. It is, uh, th this, this study, this theme, this series, we're calling it, we're calling it uh, Courage and Chaos as we kind of work through Daniel. And it's just remarkable, is it not? You, you think, how many times this year have you thought, well, it can't get any worse than it is? How many times this year have you thought, well, it can't get any more chaotic than it is? And, and I mean, it, it, every week it gets more chaotic and it gets more crazy and it gets more insane. And it's not easy to function. It's not easy to keep your joy. It's not easy to keep your perspective in all of this tumultuousness, in all of this upheaval, in in all of this deception, it, um, I think the word that stands out to me would be the word uncertain. For, for a, a long time, we had things that we could count on that were certain, but those are foundational things. And those foundational things are being attacked, they're being bulldozed, they're being uprooted. And so we're living with a lot of uncertainty now. We've got more uncertainty after the election than we did before it. And there's no reason not to address that because it's where we are and everybody's thinking about it. It's, uh, it's, it's a cloud, it's major, it's hanging over our heads. We, uh, I think it's safe to say that uh, after the election, after this election, we are uh, uncertain and we're concerned about the outcome. If you're not concerned about the outcome, you're not paying attention as to what is at stake because we've got two different worldviews here. You go back and look at some of the founding documents and when you visit Washington, D.C., it's fascinating how much scripture is chiseled in stone, is chiseled in marble. So many of the principles that were the basis for our founding documents are, are just flat out straight from scripture. The three branches of government are in scripture. if you do a little research and you do a little study. But right now, all of that is under attack. We mention <clears throat> in our documents that we are given, we are endowed with certain unalienable rights that come from our Creator. That's the Lord God Almighty of Scripture. Just looking at what's going on right now with this election and what has taken place, we all know there have always been shady things going on. I mean, you go back and you read some history, you read about the election with uh, John F. Kennedy and Nixon and about what was done, votes that were bought, stuff that happened in New England, in Chicago. I mean, you go back to Tammany Hall in New York that stuff's always been out there to a degree, but never like this. I was thinking uh, today, just off the top of my head, how many 
of the Ten Commandments have been broken um, just in, well, just last Tuesday evening, Wednesday morning, when suddenly the votes stopped being counted. Now, we do that every, every election year, every, every four years. We just, at 2 a.m., we stop. It's an American tradition. It's not an American tradition. And it didn't happen in one place, it happened in numerous places. That's interesting. You say you think that was on purpose? No. Yeah, yeah. God's moral, moral law, we've got the Ten Commandments. So think about this. You shall have no other gods before me. When your God is power, that commandment is broken because you'll do anything to get power. Thou shalt not steal. Well, that's broken. That was broken. You shall not bear false witness. That was broken. You shall not covet. Oh, that was broken. Because what, is, what they covet is power. And now, what's at stake here, and, and again, the charge could be made that you're, you're getting very political here. Well, politics is all about who your God is. It's all about who your authority is. Uh, you shall not covet what someone else has. Now, there are legitimate ways that we have set this country up so that someone can seek office. There are legitimate ways. There are illegitimate ways. But this is an assault on truth. This is an assault on law. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that in the last days, lawlessness would increase. How much has lawlessness increased in 2020? It's increased to the point that if you're lawless, you get a pass, and if you <clears throat> attempt to stand up and use your God-given rights, you'll probably be charged. That's where we are. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. That's not in the Bible, but it sure fits. We've been blessed by God, we still have freedoms, but there is a group, and they wanna take away the freedoms that come from God. And if this stands, there will never ever again well, the nation will never again be what we've enjoyed, ever. Because the process has been utterly corrupted. And again, why would someone attempt to do that? Because of who their God is. This is, this is Marxism at work. And Karl Marx hated the church. Karl Marx hated Christianity. And it was the goal of Marx and Marxism, and it still is, to replace God with a government that a certain group of elites, their will is done, and they impose their will on others, and free speech is out the window, and freedom of worship is out the window, and all these things. So... That's why there's so much uncertainty after this election. I, I want to start tonight by giving you three certain facts. And we're going to be in Daniel 2 eventually. But we'll, we'll be in a couple other places in Daniel. So three certain facts. The first one is this. 
God has already determined and certified the next president of the United States. God has already determined and certified the next president of the United States. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 25, the second half of verse 25, it says this, that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. We have people in high places. We have people in government in high places. And we are aware of the fact, and and sometimes we get them out of perspective because we think that they have the power to determine our destiny. And they have some power because they're high. But you cannot ever forget they're high, he's most high. And if they're in there, in a high position, he put them there. The good ones and the bad ones. Because of who he is. Uh, Back in Daniel 2, in verse 20, and we've read this text almost every week this, this semester, when the Lord gave to Daniel the interpretation, and we're going to go back to this in a little bit, when he gave him the dream that Nebuchadnezzar dreamt and explained the mystery to him of what was in that king's mind because God put it in his mind. When Daniel gets the answer, he says in 2.20, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. All wisdom, all power, all power, all power belongs to God. It is he who changes the times and the epics. It is he who changes the times and the seasons. So here we are in 2020, massive amounts of change. Ultimately, the one who's behind it is God. Ecclesiastes, consider the work of God who can straighten what he has bent. In the day of prosperity, be thankful, be glad. In the day of adversity, consider, for God has made the one as well as the other. So both prosperity and adversity ultimately come from the Lord. Job lost everything. He tore his clothes. He worshiped. And he said, the Lord gives and Satan takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's not what he said. It's what most American evangelical Christians say. He said, after massive losses on every level of his life, he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he says to his wife in the next chapter, now that he's got boils from head to toe, she says, just curse God and die. And he says, so shall we accept prosperity from the Lord and not adversity? So God is completely sovereign. And that would, that would include the rulers. 2.21 of Daniel, it is he who changes the times and the epics, the seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. Sometimes he puts in a good one. Sometimes he puts a bad one. Just look at the kings of the Old Testament, the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah. All the kings in the northern kingdom of Israel were idolaters, all of them, every single one of them. In the southern kingdom, Judah... Many of them were bad kings. You had a handful here and there that were good kings and sought the Lord. You say, why is that? Well, God works strangely. God works sovereignly. God works strangely. God works slowly. Isaiah 55, 8. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Is that how you would do things? No, I, I, listen, if I was calling the shots, the good guy, my guy, would always get in. <clears throat> but his ways, he tells us, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. So remember that. When things don't go the way that you think they should go. In in this situation, in in your own life, in your career, 
family stuff. Um, people sin. People make choices. I mean, people are responsible for their choices. We'll all give an account. But bad things can happen to good people. Ultimately, Thomas Watson said, whatever the affliction, it is the Lord who is behind it. It is the Lord who sends it, because he's sovereign over all things. He is never the author of evil, but he uses evil. How many times have I used this illustration? Evil is one of the gadgets on his Swiss army knife that he uses for his glory and the good of his people. So Joseph is sold into slavery at 17. That's evil. Years and years later, I mean, you're sold into slavery at 17, you're probably going to be dead by the time you're 20 because the Egyptians were not real big on workmen's compensation. You'd build a pyramid, you'd die, they'd run, they'd run over you with one of those massive, whatever those things were. But years later, he is equal with Pharaoh. He was a father to Pharaoh. He's the most powerful man on the face of the earth. The father dies. He says to his brothers who betrayed him and sold him into slavery, you intended it for evil. But God intended it for what? Good. That's true in your life, and that's true in my life. Those who have done the worst damage to you in your life, can't tell you how, can't tell you when, but God will turn that to your good. Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things, all things, the good and the bad. God causes all things to work together for good. He doesn't say all things are good because all things aren't good. Murder's not good. Sexual assault isn't good. Torture isn't good. Betrayal isn't good. A lot of things aren't good. But God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This is all because... Um, God's sovereign. And that's why we can say with certainty God has already determined and certified the next president of the United States, although it's unclear to us. Number two, here's the second fact. God is certain about the future because he has decreed the future. God is certain about the future because he's written the future. So many of the uh, critics of the Bible, the liberal scholars, they look at prophecy in Scripture. They, they look at specific prophecy being fulfilled, and they absolutely dismiss it because there's no way that prophet could have known what was going to happen 300 years in the future. Well, you know, actually, there is a way. If God who wrote the future, revealed it to that prophet, of course it came true. But see, you dismiss God. You dismiss that that's a possibility. Second fact, God is certain about the future because he has decreed the future. So what's happening in, in Daniel 4, in verse 34, is that and we're, we're moving ahead from two, obviously. But in four, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And when Daniel tells him the interpretation, he said, Oh, king, this is about you. And if you do not give glory to God and humble yourself, you're going to be given the mind of a, of a beast for seven years, and you'll graze in the fields. And that's exactly what happened. And then the seven years was over, and in four... 434, it says, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me. See, God controls human hearts. God controls every human heart, every human mind. God took away his reason as a judgment for seven years, and then God gave it back to him. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
You got kids? You got grandkids? His kingdom endures for their generation. The grandkids of your grandkids. His kingdom endures for that generation. Psalm 90 verse 1 says, O Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. All the generations of history beginning with Adam and Eve. Until Jesus returns at the end of Revelation. All those generations are within the scope and plan of God. He knows them all by name. It's already certain who they are. Verse 35 of Daniel 4. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. Did you catch that? He does... this is, this is really fascinating. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing in terms of their, their impact in regard to the whole nature and scope of God's plan for the generations. We'll see that here in just a minute. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth He's working among everyone on the earth. He's involved. He's not distant. And no one can ward off his hand. No one can do it. No one can stop him. No one can thwart his plan. It's impossible to do. Third uh, fact of certainty. God has decreed that nations rise and fall. God has decreed that nations rise and fall. Uh, Let's go to Isaiah chapter 40. And God makes this very clear about the nations. Verse 13. Let's pick it up with 12. That's too good to miss. 40-12. Isaiah, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, the oceans, and marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure. You think about that for a minute. The dust of the earth. And weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult? Who gave him understanding? And who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge? And informed him of the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. That's the United States. That's China. That would be Germany under Hitler. Soviet Union. All the great empires of the past. Look at 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. I'd like to see them take that verse and put it up at the entrance to the United Nations. Verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Look at verse 23. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing. Okay, now notice, what's our point? What's the fact? God has decrees, decreed that nations rise and fall. All right, he's already talked about the nations. Now he's going to talk about rulers. He reduces rulers to nothing. That means they were something in their eyes, in the world's eyes. So they were at the top, and now they're nothing. He it is who redu- reduces rulers to nothing. Where's Saddam Hussein? Is he still stirring up trouble somewhere? No, he's not. Who makes the judges of the earth meaningless? Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them, and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. So they've taken root, they have power, and then what happens? 
they're blown away. That's, um, what is that? That is, uh, that's the rise and that's the fall. Uh, 25, to whom then will you liken me that I would be as equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high. See who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Now, that's our God. But if you're online all the time, if you're watching the news feeds or the whatever, if that's your focus, you're going to be on medication, all kinds of medication. But when you turn your eyes upon Jesus, it changes everything. Oh, down at 41.4, it says, who has performed and accomplished it, once again, calling forth the generations from the beginning. There you go, the generations. He's intimately involved in all the generations and all the affairs of every generation, including this generation right now. And then he goes on at that end of four and says, I, the Lord, am the first and with the last. I am he. He's everything. Those are three facts. Cal Thomas has been around for a long time. A columnist, uh, Mary and I met him at the Family Research Council uh, symposium, I want to say in 87, 88. Uh, he, he's got to be in his early 80s at least. Uh, very sharp, very active, still writing his column. He has written a new book uh, called America's Expiration Date. The subtitle is The Fall of Empires and Superpowers and the Future of the United States. I've been reading it. And he... Uh, there are two men who have studied the history of civilizations and the rise and fall of great nations. Um, one of them was Arnold Toynbee, who did a 12-volume work. I know it's on your bedstand. It could be a pillar for all four posts of your bed. Um, it took him, uh, he, he began that book, that, that, those volumes in 1934, and he finished it in 1961. It's called Civilization. He outlined the pattern of the rise and fall of great nations. <clears throat> he, uh, Toynbee, identified over 20 major civilizations in history that had collapsed. And he said they went through five stages. Number one, birth. Number two, rapid expansion. Number three, conservation of gains made. Makes sense. Four, moral decline. Five, disintegration. They collapse from within. Another gentleman, Sir John Glubb, also spent his life studying and in the introduction, uh, the same subject, the same topic, and in the introduction to Thomas's book, he talks about the influence of a book written by Sir John Glubb in, in his, his, his many papers. He says about Glubb, he was a career British soldier who led and trained from 1939 to 1956, which what eventually became Jordan's army. Sir John also gained worldwide acclaim as a scholar and author, writing 21 books and hundreds of articles. One of them, The Fate of Empires and Search for Survival, is the inspiration for this book. Specifically, it was a paragraph from the introduction to that book that caught my attention. Here's the paragraph. Glubb wrote, the experiences of the human race have been recorded in more or less detail for some 4,000 years. 
if we attempt to study such a period of time in as many countries as possible, we seem to discover the same patterns constantly repeated under widely different conditions of climate, culture, and religion. Surely we ask ourselves if we studied calmly and impartially the history of human institutions and development over these 4,000 years, should we not reach conclusions which would assist to solve our problems today? For everything that is occurring around us has happened again and again before, end of quote. And then Thomas says, if that sounds familiar, you have likely read and remembered Ecclesiastes 1.9, which says, what has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Another paragraph for two or three or four, because it's setting this up for us in Daniel. Sir John Glove, Thomas says, asserted we refuse to learn much from history because our studies are brief and prejudiced. He was surprised to learn that the average age of a nation or empire's greatness is 250 years. This average, he writes, has not varied for 3,000 years. Let that sink in. Over the past 3,000 years, every great nation or empire lost its way in an average of a mere 250 years. Thomas says, I will do the math for you. On July 4th, 2026, the United States of America will be 250 years old. Then he goes on and says this, if you knew that in fewer than 10 years, this great nation will no longer be the beacon of freedom and opportunity it once was, what would you do right now to ensure that your children and grandchildren will continue to enjoy the uniqueness of America that was handed to you by your parents and grandparents? We were watching a documentary last night. Young man who grew up dirt poor, young black man in uh, Savannah, Georgia. His mother had three children by the time she was 20. At the age of uh, six, he went to live with his grandfather and grandmother. He, he and his brother, they, they, they loved that home because it was new, it was clean, it was orderly. And uh, his grandfather, as he described it, his grandmother was a saint, and his grandfather was strict, very strict. And his grandfather believed, although illiterate, believed in hard work. And this young man and his brother worked. They worked hard in school, they worked after school, they worked before school, they worked in the summers, they worked. And they didn't always feel real charitable towards their strict grandfather. Wound up going off to college. In 68, when Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy were assassinated and all the other things were going on, this young black man turned to Marxism and black power and bought into it wholeheartedly. Fascinating documentary, well done on the life of Clarence Thomas. And after a demonstration one night that he was a part of, that was so contrary to everything he'd ever been a part of in his life and everything he'd been taught by his grandfather. He stood in front of a church and called out to God and said, if you can take away the bitterness in my heart, I'll serve you, I'll follow you. That grandfather, an illiterate man had no idea that feisty, young, strong-willed, stubborn little boy 
would one day be on the Supreme Court of the United States. Yeah, you know, uh, I was talking to a young man who happens to be my son a few weeks ago, and so I've got two sons, and just a phone conversation and just thinking ahead about the future where things are going. If, if we lose what we have right now, and, and it goes without saying, we've never been perfect. We all know that. But when you compare it to what else is out there and what else is being pushed on us, it's pretty good. And if we lose it, he's thinking out about his little boys who are seven and four and their future. And he, he, was, um, he was fighting off um, discouragement. He, he was really trying to find some hope. And I told him about 1968. And we talked about 1968, oh, I don't know, six, seven, eight weeks ago. I said, I'm telling you, in 68 it was bad. 100, 150 cities on fire. That many, Dad? Yeah. It was out of control. It was anarchy. But then, God did something completely unexpected. And it looked like there was no reversal. It looked like there was no turning back. <clears throat> and suddenly, this movement of the Holy Spirit that we now call the Jesus movement hit. And it hit hard. And millions of young people came to know Christ. It was a revival, a true revival. Revival is, there, there's, um, there's an idea of revival that it's something that a church does, not so much anymore, but there used to be revival meetings, and you'd schedule one, maybe two or three revivals a year. And you bring in some guy from out of town. And... You, you meet for six straight nights because he's got six sermons. And he fires everybody up. And you give altar calls and tell people just out of fatigue, come forward. Please. Sure, I'll come forward. Just, sure. I need to go home and go to bed. Uh, you, you're laughing because some of you remember that and you've been a part of it. But when there's genuine revival, they're not planned and they're not scheduled, God breaks through. And God shows up, and it just happens. That's the real thing. That's what we need again, right now. Back to Sir John Glubb. I wonder if he ever thought about changing his last name. That just popped into my head. Um, probably, obviously not. Um, anyway, little diversion there, guys. So John Glubb, Thomas goes on and says, found patterns or stages in the rise and fall of great nations, just as um, Toynbee did. But he came up with different terms. He called them the age of pioneers, the rise and fall of great nations. First, you had the age of pioneers, then the age of conquest, uh, the age of commerce, of business, the age of affluence, the age of intellect, and finally the age of decadence. With some nations, it's difficult to distinguish between the ages of pioneers and conquest. But in general, each great nation or empire begins with some type of pioneer activity, uh, gains territory through battle, and then settles into remarkable commercial activity, which in turn brings great wealth and with an increased literacy and learning. And in this book, he looks at nine great empires. The last one he looks at is the United States of America. Another paragraph or two. You may notice that I will refer to some developments within these empires and nations that occur beyond the 250-year window indicated by Sir John Glubb. In most cases, the entity in question does not simply disappear after 250 years, but staggers 
on in a much less dynamic and influential state. Think the British Empire. They didn't go out of existence. They're still around today, but not nearly what they were. The important point to understand is that they never returned to their greatness. But I believe, and I believe that that is our fate, unless we take necessary steps to reverse an almost inevitable decline. In, in this book, there is, uh, there's bad news, and in this book, there's good news. But that's, that's the way the Bible is. There's, uh, Francis Schaeffer said, in our generation, we're too quick to tell the people the good news of the gospel. Someone asked Francis Schaeffer one time, if you had an hour on a plane with an unbeliever for a conversation, and you wanted to share the gospel, it seemed like they were open, what would your approach be? And Schaefer said, I would spend 45 to 50 minutes giving them the bad news about sin and sin in their heart and the hopelessness of sin and the inevitability of judgment and that there is no heart, hope, you cannot earn your way out by works. He said, I would paint as dismal and dark a picture as the scriptures paint. And then in the last 10 minutes, I'd give them the good news of Christ. We're too quick to give the good news. If you don't realize your condition and if you don't can realize how lost you are, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a pretty good guy like me. That's not what John Newton wrote. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch and Newton meant it because he was a wretched man. Wretched. And he knew it. That's why he was amazed by the grace. He was amazed by the good news. So God has decreed that nations rise and fall. So as we're here tonight, is it inevitable? No. Is it probable at some point? Yes. Yes. Because God eventually gives people and he'll give a nation, he'll just give them over. You want to go that way? He'll give them over. The hope is, is that right now, there are millions of believers in this country who are praying and fasting and calling out to the Lord for mercy. That's a fact. And you know the verse... If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, then I shall hear from heaven and save their land. We don't know what's in the future immediately, but we know that God is in charge of the future, and we know that God is merciful. I, I think we should be hopeful. I think that we should be praying Right now, 1 Timothy 2, which says, first of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. And, and, and don't forget that if they're in authority, they're under the authority. They're high, but he's most high. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. If it's, if it's going to go the way that it potentially could go, the tranquility is over. And with all of our flaws and all of the wickedness this nation has been a beacon of light. It, it is the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. And someone observed that that power, you, you, look at the, you look at the track record, that power has been used for the benefit of more hurting people across the world than any other nation that you can think of. Obviously, again, doesn't mean that we're, we're perfect because no one's saying we're perfect. But that's something that you can pray right now. 
Let's go back to Daniel 2. And the reason I want to go to Daniel 2, and it's interesting how this has been shaking out, going through Daniel and taking a pit stop at Esther a couple of weeks ago. Daniel is a book that we relate to because he was in uh, a nation, his nation, you talk about the rise and fall, Judah had fallen. He was in captivity with the people for 70 years in Babylon. And uh, they had been taken over. Actually, they had been given over. What is occurring in Daniel 2 is that Daniel is in a high place. He's been in this uh, apprenticeship program, this Nebuchadnezzar School of Government MBA, because he was part of the royal family along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in Daniel 2, the king has this dream that scares him to death, and we've been over this, but the dream is so frightening to him that he says to his counselors and the guys, you know, that give him all the advice, usually he'll say, well, here's the dream, tell me what it means, and they get together and write a position paper and all that stuff. He says, listen, I'm not messing around with you guys, tell me the dream. And they freak out because there's nobody who can do that. Uh, they said there's not, a, in fact, in, in, in Daniel 2.10, they say this. In 2.10, the Chaldeans answered the king, this is chapter 2, and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, what you dreamt. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Well, he was asking, and if they didn't come through, he was going to kill them. And that would include Daniel and the three guys, his buddies. And then the Lord reveals the mystery. In Daniel 2.19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. God told him what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt. And then Daniel reports to Arioch, in 25, then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as followed. I found a man among the exiles who can make the interpretation known. Daniel answered before the king, uh, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. By the way, if you look up at verse 22, Daniel in his prayer of thanksgiving says, it is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. Who knows what is in, he knows what is in the darkness. And all of this stuff that's going on right now, this stealing, this rigging, this, these illegalities, he knows what is in the darkness. He knows and he can make a path out of it. He knows. So here he goes in 29. He's going to give the goods to the king. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. As for me, the mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. 31, here's the king's dream. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a great, uh, a single great statue, that statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold. Its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. This is what you call detailed. Yeah, you had a dream, and you saw a cloud, and you, huh, and... Yeah, I see good things for you in the future. It's not that nonsense. I mean, this is specific. 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. 
but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That was the dream. He nailed it. Now, what does it mean? Verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, <clears throat> are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the fields, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Okay. So, that's Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 39. Note the rise and fall of nations. And after you, there will arise another kingdom. This one's going to go down, but another one will come up. Another kingdom inferior to you. <clears throat> then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Without going into the background and the explanation, let me just tell you where we are so far. He is talking about coming kings and coming empires. He's telling, this dream is all about the future. It's about the, the next 600 years. And God knows this next, what's going to happen in the next 600 years because he has decreed it, he has written it. This is what this dream is all about. I'm quoting from Warren Wearsby here. He says, the large image represented four Gentile kingdoms. The head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar. It lasted from 636 B.C. to 539 B.C. The breast and arms of silver. This is the Medo-Persian kingdom, 539 to 330 B.C. Darius the Mede conquered Babylon, or Cyrus. He's the one who took them back to Jerusalem after 70 years. The belly and the thighs of brawn. That's the Grecian kingdom. That's Alexander the Great who established what was probably the largest empire in ancient times. He died in 323 B.C. What's next? Verse 40. There will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like Iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. The detail here is incredible. As to the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combined with pottery. What is that? That's the Roman Empire. From 63, 63 B.C. until A.D. 475. Wisby writes, iron represents strength, but clay represents weakness. Rome was strong in law, organization, and military might, but the empire included so many different peoples that this created weakness. Then, verse 44, here you go. Watch this. In those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. That's Jesus. That's the kingdom of God. And Jesus came right in the middle of the Roman Empire. He showed up, born of a virgin, the God-man, lived a sinless life, went to the cross. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He paid for our sins in full. He was buried. He rose on the third day. After 40 days, he ascended to the Father, and he's at the right hand of the Father, and he lives forever to make intercession for us. So he's explaining to him the next 600 years. And then you get into, and then you go later into Daniel, and he goes beyond, and he gets into the Antichrist who's coming is going to rule the world in Daniel 11. That, that's, that's down the road. <clears throat> We're not there yet, but it's being set up for a one world government. We're concerned about losing this democracy. According to scripture, God has ordained that in the future, all democracies will be exterminated on the face of the earth. Now, once again, I'm just here to encourage you. But God has ordained this. 
There will be a one-world government. There will be an Antichrist, uh, 11.32 of Daniel. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly towards the covenant. Now watch this. Here's a great line. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. So let's sum this up. So we've got these three certainties. Let's ask this question as we, as we sum up, because this is what's on our mind. Well, what about my future? What about the future of my kids, my grandkids? What about the future of this country? That Daniel 11:32, you might want to tattoo somewhere. Maybe just in your mind. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Why? Because look at the first part of it. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly towards the covenant. That's what's going on right now. There are a lot of smooth words going on. There's a lot of deceit. There's a lot of lying. There's a lot of promises. You say, was the Antichrist here? I don't know. But 1 John 2 says that many Antichrists have gone out into the world. What about our future? So I woke up the other night in the middle of the night, and I'd gone to bed late, and I just woke up. And uh, gosh, I need to get some sleep, but I couldn't go back to sleep. So I just started praying. And I just started asking the Lord for mercy. And I asked that, I prayed the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not mine, thy will be done. On earth, on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know your timing. I don't know what your plan is, Lord. We deserve judgment. I'm asking for mercy. I got these little kids, these little grandkids. I pray that you'll bring every one of them to know you. And they're going to grow up in a, in a, we think it's bad now. They're going to be raised in a culture that glorifies, uh, atheism is epidemic. It's epidemic. It's everywhere. It, it's, they're aggressive now. What's it going to be in 10, 20, 30, 40 years? So I'm praying for those kids. I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be with the Lord. But they're going to be here. I'm praying. And then I started to nod off, and I, I needed another hour or two of sleep, and I just, when I need to sleep, I start quoting scripture. Not a lot of scripture. I'll land on one, and I'll just chew on it. And I was thinking, I, I, and I'm kind of going through my catalog of scriptures, and I just needed one that would kind of kick in. And there's a bunch of them. But where I landed was Psalm 37.3. And I love this verse, and it's a great psalm. And in Psalm 33, 37, interestingly enough, as so many psalms, it is it's a psalm of David and he's surrounded by evildoers. I'll read verse 1. Do not fret because of evildoers. Am I doing that right now? Are you doing that? Don't fret because of evildoers. Be not envious towards wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Here's the verse I landed on. Trust in the Lord and do good. He's not talking about good works to be saved. In the context here, you do good when you obey the Lord God Almighty, the covenant God. You're not doing wrong, and you know when you do wrong. I know when I'm wrong. You're not, you're not living a double life 
You don't have some woman on the side. You, you don't have hidden sin that you're covering up. You're not teaching a Bible study and then you got, you got stuff. And, and the Lord's been talking to you about it and you just keep sloughing him off. You don't want to do that. This is not a time to be, this is not a time to be screwing around. This is a time you get all in. Uh, hey, we've all, we're all beset with weaknesses. We, we're, we've all got our stuff. But I'm talking about intentional, rebellious sin that you're hiding and covering. You cannot expect the favor and blessing of God. You can expect the discipline of God. So what do you do? You repent of it, you confess it. I, I, I had a, not too long ago, a guy told me he'd been, in, he'd been living a double life for 25 years. And then he went on to say, I, I knew I should take care of it, but the sin was very, very profitable. He stayed with it. Because he wanted to stay at a certain level. And if he came clean, not only would he find out, but he would have a drop. That was the issue. For what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Trust in the Lord and do good. Obey him. When you sin, confess it. Walk in fellowship with him. Trust in the Lord, do good. Watch this. Dwell in the land, and New American Standard says, and cultivate faithfulness. But there's an alternative translation, rough-hewn Hebrew translation, no varnish, hasn't been sanded off, and here's what it says. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Feed on his faithfulness. Just feed on the faithfulness of God. Just feed on the faithfulness of God. And you know how I went to sleep that night? I just kept going through that verse word by word. And I think about it. Trust in the Lord. And I, Lord, how, how many things have I seen you do in my life? How many times have you come through for me? And now we're facing this. I can't control this. I can't begin, but you can. Trust in the Lord. And Lord, I, don't, I, I, I confess sin to you. I, I, at this moment, I know there's sin I'm blind to in my own life. I confess that to you because I got blind spots. Trust the Lord do good. Dwell in the land. I'm here, I'm dwelling in my bed on my one acre. And I thank you that I'm here and you've been good to us. And I can't keep this thing going. But I feed on your faithfulness. And I just kept chewing on it. And I dropped off. Just like some of you have dropped off. Look at verse 7, and we'll finish. Uh, 7 through 15. This applies to us right now. And this election and the uncertainty. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in the way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger, forsake wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully for his place. He will not be there, for the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. Watch this. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken.
23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Let's pray. Father, we are living in uncertain times, but we thank you for the certainty that we have in you. We thank you for who you are, for your, your, your power, your majesty, your glory, your plan for the ages. We look to you. We look to your word. Our hope is in you. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any nation. Father, we call out to you. We pray that you would be merciful. We pray that you would send a movement of your Holy Spirit that would turn people to Christ who have no interest in you. That you would bring them into the kingdom. You did that in England in the, in, under, under George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers. That nation was going down. They were collapsing and you moved. You moved. We ask you to move. Bring people into the kingdom so that they will know Christ and live forever. Save families, children. We're asking for mercy. We're asking that your name would be honored and exalted. And in the interim, help us to trust mightily in you. Help us tonight not only to sleep, but to rest. To rest. You give to your beloved even in their sleep. We pray these things in the name that's above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen.